Trinity Harbor Church offers the following audio recording as a ministry without charge or legal restriction. We're located in downtown Rockwall, Texas, serving the greater Northeast Dallas area. For more information, visit us online at trinityharborchurch.com. Our prayer is that by this message, you will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning. Nice. Some of you are awake. A couple of quick odds and ends before we get started. You may notice that on the inside of your worship guide cover, there is a welcome to visitors sheet if you happen to be visiting with us and would care to fill that out. What we're going to do is, is call you up and see if you want to grab a cup of coffee. No pressure. No, um, you know, if you are here and want to be known, we would love to get to know you. So you can rip that off and drop it in the offering plate as it goes by later in the service if you're interested in that. As well, um, you know, I just got up here and thought I had three things to say. I only came up with one. So let's look at Romans 9 and 10. Uh, we'll be reading Romans 9, 30 uh, through chapter 10, verse 21, which is the passage on which the teaching is based. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal up for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask you, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask you, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. 
I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I've had a few songs that have bored their way into my brain like a parasite. And boys and girls, you may recognize a few of them. One is, do you want to build a snowman? Or, the wind is howling like the swirling storm inside. Couldn't keep it in, heaven knows I tried, don't let them in, don't let them see. Be the good girl that you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Well, now they know. Let it go, let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. Most of you are familiar with those lyrics from the new Disney hit Frozen. Some of you may not be quite as familiar and perhaps will see the film, though maybe not after I'm done this morning. But it tells the story of two sisters, Elsa and Anna, Both princesses, the older is born with magical snow and ice power and unfortunately injures her sister at one point and uh, eventually grows up kind of isolated and then kind of loses control of her power. And so uh, it's ultimately revealed to the people that she has this power, that she's been trying to keep a secret for more than a decade. And so she runs away and says, fine, it's great that this is now out, now I'm free, now my secret is known. And so she is celebrating in that song, being free, that now she is known as who she really is, she doesn't have to hide, and yet even as she proclaims her freedom, she has to leave everyone she loves, she buries her town in snow and ice, and builds a castle in which she will live by herself for the rest of her days. She doesn't have a very good notion of what freedom is. Even as she celebrates her freedom, she is entering into a prison of sorts. And Elsa is a picture of us that uh, that represents a bit of Israel. In the sense that they celebrate their freedom in some ways. They celebrate that they are the ones who have received the law, but they don't really know what freedom is. And this is what Paul is doing, is he's writing to the church in Rome, and is saying, no, real freedom has come by virtue of Jesus' death and resurrection, by virtue of the gospel. And what you have thought has granted you freedom has not really granted you freedom. In fact, it's actually worked only to imprison you so that you would have the potential of recognizing the rescuer when he comes. But Paul's wrestling with the fact that not too many of Israel are actually recognizing the rescuer now that he has shown up. And so he's arguing with them. He's He's trying to get them to see that the freedom they think they have, the privilege they think they have, isn't that at all. It's not anything if they don't have Jesus Christ at the same time. And so Paul in chapter 10, really as the center point of 9 through 11, is bringing a number of threads together that we've been pursuing in the book of Romans in the previous weeks. And this is how we're going to see them come together this morning. Number one, the failure of law which you should almost be able at this point if you've been around to anticipate. The failure of law, number two, the victory, 
of faith. And number three, the beauty of the story. So number one, the failure of law. Number two, the victory of faith. And number three, the beauty of the story. So what do we mean when we talk about the failure of the law? Well, if we go back to the Old Testament, in fact, if we even considered again the passage that we had read out of Deuteronomy, we realized that the law promised life. If Israel was obedient, then God's blessing would come upon them in special ways, and His promises would be fulfilled, and they would be redeemed. And all of this is, uh, Paul is arguing, has come true in Jesus Christ. And the law didn't actually work the way that you might have expected it to if you're reading strictly from an Old Testament perspective. And so look at verse 931. Paul begins to say that Israel failed to achieve God's righteousness through the law because they failed to approach the law through faith. And the Gentiles have attained God's righteousness in 930. Why? Because they have received it by faith. The Gentiles have come in. They've been allowed to know God through Jesus because they have received what God has given by faith. And Israel is not recognizing Jesus because they're trying to attain a righteousness that is through the law and not through faith. In other words, the Gentiles have been surprised and have been given something beautiful by God and have received it. As where Israel is trying to manufacture something from within, whether it's because they believe they're set apart by things like circumcision and dietary laws, or it's because they think that they can actually live such a life of obedience that they would warrant God's blessing, Either way, they're trying to manufacture something. It's a pursuit of righteousness through the law that's not working. And when Jesus comes onto this scene, he acts, Paul quotes from Isaiah, like a stumbling stone. Israel's walking along. They think, okay, we've got things. We understand things. We understand the law. We understand obedience. Jesus plops down in the middle of that, and they can't do anything but fall face first onto the ground because he messes everything up. Right? Resurrection changes everything. The arrival of Jesus, His death and resurrection, makes the church, the people of God, have to rethink much of what they thought they knew about the Old Testament. And this is what's going on before us in the book of Romans. So, Jesus is the stumbling stone and causes us again to ask the question and make sure we understand, what was the problem then with the law? Wasn't the law from God? Isn't the law good? Why did it then not affect what it was supposed to affect? Well, as we read Paul, we realize that the problem wasn't so much with the law itself as with the brokenness of the human heart. That the law can't actually produce righteousness because the humans who are engaging in the law are so sick from rebellion against God and sin. Out of curiosity this week, I had heard that the Frozen, the movie, was actually based loosely uh, on a Hans Christian Andersen fable entitled The Snow Queen. I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder what, you know, Hans Christian Andersen's fable is like in comparison. And in short, they're nothing alike. Uh, I heard loosely that Disney went through a few rewrites, which is more like completely rewrote the entire story and has almost no connection to Andersen's fable. Uh, and Andersen's fable is much better, and it's pretty interesting to see how much distance is as we have come from Hans Christian Andersen to a Disney take and what it teaches us culturally about the world in which we exist. So Anderson starts off his fable with, uh, with a project of the devil. 
he's kind of behind much of the mischief that's happening in the fable of the Snow Queen. And the devil makes a mirror. And the intent of this mirror is, it, as you look into it, it, uh, it corrupts your vision. In other words, if something beautiful goes into the mirror, what you see is something that's not very beautiful. If you see something not very beautiful in the mirror, the mirror makes it out to be more beautiful than it is. And this is how Anderson writes, writes this out. He writes, The most beautiful landscapes reflected in it looked like boiled spinach. What a great way of describing Boiled spinach. And the best people became hideous, or else they were upside down and had no bodies. Their faces were distorted beyond recognition, and if they had even one freckle, it appeared spread all over the nose and mouth. The devil thought this immensely amusing. And so the devil actually runs a school of demons, and part of the uh, role of the demons in the school is to take this mirror all over the world so it corrupts the vision of all of humanity that they begin to see things differently as a result of having seen things in the mirror. Well, the demons are delighted. They're so excited that they say, hey, why don't we go to heaven and corrupt the angels? Once they get a look in the mirror, they also will be distorted in the way that they see things. And so they're on the way up, and they're so giddy. And the mirror itself has kind of a, a personality and embodiment. And the mirror is getting so excited at the idea of corrupting the angels that it's shaking violently with laughter and slips out of the hands of the demons and plummets to earth and breaks into a million pieces, some smaller than a grain of sand. And this spreads over the whole earth and some of the specks get in people's eyes and some of the specks get in people's hearts. And for the people who have a speck in their heart, it freezes their heart. It makes it like a lump of ice so that they don't understand love very well. You'd be hard-pressed to, to come up with a better analogy for evil in the world and brokenness and sin. And indeed, it's this brokenness. There are two characters, two childhood friends, not sisters or princesses. Kai and, and Gerda are their names. And Kai gets one of these shards in his heart, and his heart freezes like a lump of ice. And he's taken away by the Snow Queen to live in an illusion for the rest of his days. And Gerda, his childhood friend, pursues him. And, and we'll come back to, um, to the story of the Snow Queen in a little bit. But at this point, all we want to observe is, is the nature of sin. These shards in uh, the Snow Queen that saturate the earth. And as a result, no one sees quite correctly. People don't uh, love correctly. Right? And this is the nature of sin. And this is why the law of God, when it's given to Israel, can't really work because the brokenness of people's heart use the law then as a tool of, of manipulation or not of really drawing near to God or of boasting in their own righteousness. And the law gets perverted and doesn't actually achieve what it was intended to achieve. As we try to understand what was wrong for Israel with the law, realize what we're doing. In many places, Paul will say the mistakes of Israel were you know, written down. They're, they're given to us as an example so that we would not make the same mistakes, that we would learn from those mistakes. So if we don't understand Israel's dysfunction with the law, and then we just move forward thinking that we have faith in Christ, we stand to make the same mistakes. And we'll flesh that out. That might sound rather abstract. All right? One of the better lenses in the New Testament by which to do this is, is the story of the prodigal son. 
In Luke's Gospel, records a story that Jesus tells. There's a rich father. He's got two boys. One boy runs off and spends his inheritance. He asks for it early and then returns home repentant after he spent everything. The older brother stays at home, honors his father, and when his younger brother comes home, is very angry because his younger brother is received home without really any consequence. He's simply welcomed back into the house. And this, Jesus actually says this is a parable that, that, that shows us, that deals with the brokenness of Israel's heart, but it's a parable that deals with the brokenness of our heart as well. See, what you have to understand, first and foremost, about the parable of the prodigal son is that both sons hate their father. We often say, oh, obviously the younger son hates his father because the younger son goes and asks for his inheritance, which is only what you would get when your father is dead, and then runs off and spends it in rebellion. But we see at the end of the story that the older brother is just as upset, is just as angry or hating the father because he won't heed the father's wishes. He won't celebrate with his father at his younger brother's return. He simply wants what he perceives to be justice against the wishes of his father. It's really brokenness on both sides. It's a picture of sin that we wrestle with in in different ways. And you probably have a leaning one direction or another. Some of you, we would say, have more in common with the younger brother. The one who rebels outrightly and pursues a life of pleasure. As you look back over your life, what has it been? Are you the rebellious sort? Did you go off the ranch in high school or college or in your 20s, disregarding what was expected of you? That may be something of your nature. Now, as we're doing this, also remember, this is something that reveals our own hearts. And so, it's as you might identify with the younger brother who runs off, you may notice, you know, you have to ask questions that would reveal your heart. Ask real questions. Say, do I have anything in common with the younger brother? Do you? I can tell you how the younger brother would live today. Uh, the younger brother hasn't tithed in a long time. Can't even imagine giving 10% of his income to the church. Oh, he gives occasionally a little sum just to feel good. But most of his money is going to be spent on his pleasures. Most of his money is going to be leveraged for what he wants rather than for the kingdom. That's how the younger brother would be living today. Most of his time would be spent on himself. Oh, you know, the stories you'll hear, the things people say. I'm so busy. I'm already overcommitted. But you realize that in the evenings and on the weekends, most of the time is either invested in one's own family or an escape, or pleasure, or some pursuit, that is strictly what you want to do. This is the mode, the uh, the uh, operated... Thank you. The modus operandi of the younger brother. And uh, they love, he loves to be loved by others, but it's the kind of pursuit of love of others that you're surprised at sometimes what you're willing to do to receive the affection of other people. You get so caught up in pursuing relationship, pursuing affection from someone that you think, oh, I'm kind of shocked that I was willing to do that or go to that extent to receive that affection. This is the the MO of the younger brother. But some of you have more in common with the older brother, right? Yours is a life of achievement. 
You work very hard, and you pride yourself on working hard. And you are desperately judgmental. Right? Everyone else, as you look around, either A, they're not working hard enough or as hard as you do, and they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, and you're not getting the credit that you're entitled to. Right? That's the kind of things that you think to yourself and say in quietness. And you're angry a lot of the time, mostly because you're not giving, getting the credit you deserve and because other people aren't doing what they should be doing. Right? Two, two different pictures of the brokenness of the human heart. Sin that corrupts it. Right? If we were to use uh, Anderson's um, analogy, as it were, of the shards of the broken mirror of the devil that infects people on earth. It's the way it causes us to look at things the wrong way. And what you have to realize is that when you think about the two brothers, it's not really an either or. After I've challenged you to identify with one or the other, and you probably do, and I certainly do, I'm definitely majority older brother. I'm angry way too much of the time and far too judgmental. It's something that I have to perennially work on. But at the same time, we're all both. Even for the most older brother of us, there's going to be a window where you say, I deserve a break. I'm going to take a little time off. I've earned it. I'm going to be indulgent. And you pursue something. And even for the most rebellious, when you get to a place of certain shame, you go, oh, I'm going to be responsible today, or I'm going to be responsible this week. And so the younger brother, when he gets a degree of shame, will pretend at being uh, the older brother to relieve the shame. And when the older brother gets to a certain point of guilt, right, how can I live with all this anger and with all this judgment and I'm not really loving people? You get to a certain point, you say, oh, well, I'm just going to escape it by indulging in something. And you escape for a while and you live like the younger brother. And so we go back and forth to some degree. All of us can recognize pieces of our personality, pieces of our dysfunction in each of the brothers. And I was listening to a lecture, of all things, on a philosopher named Hegel this week, who talked about how ideas have to clash. And they have to clash in order to produce something new. And I realized, you know, he's the, the guy who really wasn't original with him, but came, brought to the fore, you have a, 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 a thesis and an antithesis, and you slam them together, and out comes a synthesis. And I thought, that's great. That explains a lot of the world. You know, I want a Twinkie, but I want something fried. I want a Twinkie, but I want something fried. And then some great genius at the state fair says, I'm going to fry a Twinkie. Right? You have thesis, antithesis, and they slam together in a synthesis, which is a new groundbreaking, earth-shattering idea, like a deep-fried Twinkie. So that's the idea. The thing I didn't understand about Hegel, which is this, he said, you know what, we don't really just come up with antithesis. Basically, a thesis, or with a synthesis, basically a thesis and an antithesis have to be slammed together. They essentially have to go to war. And that's how really new ideas, a synthesis, is formed. And he's living in the time when Europe is in massive upheaval. And you basically have the breakdown of the feudal system and the French Revolution and the monarchies are being overthrown. And, and this is what Hegel said. He said, you have the, um, for the first time, you know, the peasantry saying, we're human people too and have rights. Well, that's pretty radical. And, but he says, the, um, the, the, the upper classes are actually no more free than the peasants. 
They don't actually know what it means to be human because they can't embrace other human beings for as human beings. They treat them as less than human. And so the two actually have to go to war with each other for a new synthesis to be developed and for both to be freed. And I'm listening to this at the gym, and I said, oh my goodness, that's the problem with the law. Because the law produces in us, I mean, this is a bit simplistic, but it produces these different faces. And if we just stick with the prodigal son, in each of us there is both younger brother and elder brother. And they go back and forth, and it's the most dysfunctional way to handle shame and guilt. But this is what's been going on in Israel. You can either rebel or throw caution to the wind, and then you develop shame, or you can try to be really obedient and hope for God's approval and seek His righteousness that way, and that just leads to guilt. And then you flip-flop, and then you have to flip-flop again to undo the flip-flop. It's an endless spiral of sin and despair and a lack of relationship with God because righteousness, God's righteousness doesn't come through the law. And so what has to happen? The brothers have to go to war. They have to fight it out. They have to crush each other. And then I said, well, that won't work because if that happened, then we'd be destroyed. There wouldn't be anything left if these sinful parts of us actually tried to produce a synthesis that was worthwhile inside of us. And yet I thought, that's what we're doing all the time. It's trying to figure out how to fix ourselves. How to fix the brokenness inside us. And this is what Israel was doing. Even though it had God's law, it says we will figure it out. And this is Paul's exact warning. As he borrows this passage from Deuteronomy, he significantly rewrites it. This bit about who's going to ascend into heaven and bring Christ down. And who's going to descend into the abyss and bring him up. Paul's saying, listen, no one needs to redo the work of Christ. And if you understand what has been done in Jesus Christ, you're not going to try. You're not going to try to affect your salvation or your redemption by some supernatural work of anything because you understand that it's been provided in Jesus. And this is the problem of the law that you you have to embrace because it's still part of you. This isn't a problem of the law strictly with Israel. This is a problem with the law because the old part of you, the old self, that part of you anchored in the old age, still tries to live by law. And that's why you identify with both the elder brother and the younger brother at various points in your life. And it's why this warning is for you, that you keep trying when you try to manufacture your righteousness or atone for your sin in your own ways, you're ascending into heaven to bring Christ down or descending into the abyss to bring Him up. And it won't work. It never has. And Paul would have you be liberated from that. He would have you experience and enjoy real victory, which is the victory of faith. We see the failure of the law. It cannot produce even what it might have suggested to promise. It was always intended to bring God's people to the arrival of Jesus. And that is the victory. Now that someone is saved, not by what you do, but simply... Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead and you will be saved. Now this isn't just mental ascent, like I check a box. It's Yes, your life actually has to change. If you believe in that story, then your life will be ordered by that story. It will start to reflect that very story and that's what faith is. But we realize that that's an actual gift. It's just given to us. And it isn't something that we now manufacture. We just We realize that God has loved us and brought us back home, and now we're to live as sons and daughters. 
And to the degree that we don't, it reveals to us and to the world that we don't really believe what we're saying. And as we do, it reveals both to us and to the world that we are actually believing what we're saying. I don't think that we actually struggle with how hard it is to live in this kind of freedom. The kind of freedom that Paul's talking about in Romans 10. In fact, I would say the majority of us gathered in this room this morning, the vast majority, don't really understand what freedom in the gospel is. Did you get that? You look way too sleepy. Right? You stayed up too late at the picnic. You ate too much of Wade's roasted pork. Your kids stayed up too late. I don't know. I'm telling you, you don't really get the gospel. You might look a little offended, but none of you do. Okay. (laughs) I guess I didn't say it serious enough. So, let me give you an example. Because uh, the people who are actually really good at not believing the gospel are ministers. And here's a sad example. Uh, Tim Brewer was a minister in the EPC. And he was actually a very prominent minister. He... um, the EPC is kind of a sister denomination of the PCA. There's some overlapping circles, and I was listening to a sermon by a minister in uh, Denver who was recently uh, telling the story. He had been friends with Tim. He had been a little bit behind him and always looked up to him. Tim had kind of had a stellar track record, moving from uh, successful college ministry to successful pastorate to bigger successful pastorate, had eventually taken a church that he had grown to 1,300 and things from the outside. Uh, he was known as a great guy and a great communicator. And uh, he had an accident. He was hiking somewhere in Europe, I think, and uh, was hiking through a train tunnel and somehow lost a foot. And that began a um, it began the things unraveling for him. He became very depressed. He went on medication. Things didn't improve. He was on vacation with his family in Hilton Head, and uh, he went home early. And he went into his garage and he ran a hose from his tailpipe into the window of his car and he asphyxiated himself. He left uh, a wife and three children and a congregation uh, very surprised and very hurt and very confused. And, uh, but he also he planned it out thoroughly and left a letter both to his family and to his congregation. And this is a small, a little portion of that letter. He writes, uh, how I came to be in this emotional state, I honestly do not know. Ever since the accident, it seems that I've been fighting a losing battle with depression and despair. I write this letter neither to justify my behavior nor to make anyone feel guilty for what has happened, but rather to apologize to our entire church. I know of nothing which any of you could have done to change my situation. Out of the countless sins that I have committed in this life, it is my own Wretched weakness for which I am most ashamed. Isn't that profoundly sad? As he writes to apologize to his congregation, and his, his friend would reinforce this, but you can even hear in his letter, what I am most ashamed of is my own wretched weakness. The very things that make, sets apart a Christian is the acknowledgement of our wretched weakness for whom we need, for which we need a savior to meet us in that wretched weakness. And yet, he couldn't deal with it. And you hear the voice of the older brother. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I've I've pastored the people. I know my Bible. I've studied. I've raised my family. But I I can't conquer 
my weakness. There's something that remains for me to really put down. And unable to deal with that, he entered into depression and ultimately took his life. Brewer reminds us of what it looks like to err on one of the sides of the brothers. Well, what does it mean then if we really want to walk away from being one of the brothers, if we want to walk away from trying to to promote our own righteousness in any number of ways, and we really want to draw near to Christ and say, yes, I believe that salvation is by faith, and I do not contribute anything to it. I am wretchedly weak, and I fully embrace and receive what Christ offers. There's actually a brilliant picture of it in, uh, in the Snow Queen. Or, yes, the Snow Queen, Anderson's version. Right? How different it is from the Disney version. Gerda, who's been on this quest, has sacrificed virtually everything to try to find Kai, who's been hidden in the Snow Queen's palace, which is near the North Pole. And finally, through, through many trials, she arrives and she wants to get into the palace to try to rescue Kai. And what happens is the snow, the snowflakes morph. They're the Snow Queen's minions and they become beasts and they start to oppose her. Anderson writes, but the size of these was monstrous. They were alive. They were the Snow Queen's advance guard and they took the most curious shapes. Some look like big, horrid porcupines. Some like bundles of knotted snakes with their heads sticking out. Others again were like fat little bears with bristling hair but all were dazzling white and living snowflakes. And so Gerda is about to be undone, taken over by the snowflakes. And in good Disney fashion, guess what Gerda does? She kneels and says the Lord's Prayer. Right? They changed it a little bit, didn't they? For the Disney movie. Gerda kneels. She knows it's hopeless. She's undone. She's weak. She can't possibly stand against the magic and power of the Snow Queen, but she knows one who can. And so she kneels and says the Lord's Prayer. And as she does, the words of the Lord's Prayer uh, morph into uh, the army of the Lord. And the army does battle for and takes out the snowflake monster so that Gerda can enter the castle and find Kai and ultimately uh, save him. It's a picture of, of absolute weakness. Absolutely understanding that there's nothing that I have to offer to bring. And Anderson gives us this picture as one who is totally reliant upon the grace of the Lord to conquer the greatest monsters that we might face. How different than that ridiculous movie Frozen, which is the silliest movie, boys and girls, and even though, yes, we all enjoyed it, and yes, we can't get those songs out of our head because they somehow have learned how to write crack into a song. It's really quite perplexing. All right, but you need to realize at some level that the story is very silly, all right? And the story is actually the opposite of the gospel. You need, you should go home as a family and read Anderson's. Yeah, it's a little clunky, it's old, it's hard to get through, but it's much richer. You'll be much richer for the experience, right? Just think about it for a minute with me. And boys and girls, you can figure this out. Think about Elsa, right? As a very young girl, she injures her sister, and what do her parents decide to do? Oh, we'll protect her. We'll shut her up in her room for the next 15 years. We'll deprive her of human contact. This is how they're going to remedy the situation. Right? Do you think Elsa would actually be a pretty kind of well-rounded woman as she grows up? She would be crazy. Like crazy, crazy. Like talking to herself in the streets. It wouldn't have gone well for Elsa at all. 
Right? And yet this is how they portray it. And then they get to the end and you, you have this beautiful ending. And to speak of it vaguely, you have, you know, this act of altruistic love, which rescues Elsa and helps her to deal with the brokenness inside. Right? Ever heard that story before? Someone altruistic, you know, self-giving love to remedy the fear of someone and to promote love. Right? They're ripping off the gospel. Let's be clear about that. But they're not doing it in a very good way. Right? Because all of a sudden in Elsa, right? She's, she's moved by what her sister does. Wonderful. But then she goes, you know, oh, I figured it out all of a sudden. I can control my whole power because of love. And then suddenly she's okay and the town melts and she sets up an ice skating rink. Right? That's not, you don't just do that. It's ridiculous. I'm getting more angry as I think about the movie. (laughs) This is my problem, elder brother. I'm being very judgmental. But it's a gospel-shaped judgmentalness. Maybe. So, A, it doesn't make any sense to begin with. But B, the real real process of being healed, healed from sin, being healed from the shards of the mirror that break all over the earth, is not you just don't say, oh, love, great, I'm good. It's a long process. It's a hard process. Elsa would have been in therapy for the rest of her life. That's the kind of thing. The gospel needing and being worked in to actually redeem us that we would be reliant upon Jesus and not simply on our own strength. And that's really the message of Frozen, right? The people are in a bad predicament. How do they save? How do they get saved? They save themselves. And that's the most destructive message of all. We believe in a completely different story. You and I are in a very bad predicament. The whole world is in a bad predicament. And we can't save ourselves. We need rescue to come from outside, and we need to throw ourselves on the mercy of that rescue. And that's why our story is actually much better, because we can't rescue ourselves. All right, Only in a Disney movie does that actually work or even come close to working. We need to be rescued from the outside. And this is why the story is so important. It is the beauty of the story. And it is why the story must be told, and it is why Paul celebrates. He not only says, you know, this is the beauty of the story, but he says, how beautiful even are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful are those who tell the story of the one who has come to rescue from the outside. In thinking about this passage, one of the things I've been challenged with, and this is what I'll leave you with, is to what degree do I really find that story beautiful and to what degree do I really believe that story? And as I see Paul celebrate the story being told and the story going forth and saying, how will they believe if they have not heard and how will they hear if there is no one to share the story? I realize, oh, to the degree that we believe the story is the degree to which we will tell the story. And if we are not telling the story, then we're really just fooling ourselves about believing the story. And so in what ways are you actually actively embracing the beauty of the story being told and retold? Is it in your own life when you meet someone or sit down with a friend and you say, I must tell you the beauty of the story? Or perhaps it's simply by engaging and supporting those who choose to full-time, like some of the missionaries of the church who go and tell the beauty of the story. But let's not be fooled. If we're not telling the beauty of the story, if we're not actively, actively investing in the articulation 
and promotion of the beauty of the story, then I don't think we really believe it. We will always extend salvation very much like what we have received. And if we think our salvation has come from whatever place, that's what we're going to relay in our average communications and dealing with other people. And if we're not revealing the beauty of the story of Jesus, the rescuer from outside who saves us from the desperate ends of both the younger and the older brother, then we don't really know that story or believe it or live it. And it doesn't inform our stories. And for that, we should be worried because we're far more like Israel than we would dare admit. Let's run. Remember where your rescue comes from and throw yourself on His mercy. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we continue to marvel as Paul marveled at your rescue. That in the end you would, you would come yourself and you would humble yourself to the point of being human and allow yourself to be thrown and nailed on a cross, descending to the abyss and then being raised up on the third day. It is uh, the rescue, it is the story of rescue that informs all other stories of rescue. And it's funny to think about how many different ways culture will try to rip off that story. We pray that we would not be fooled. We pray that we would not be distracted. We pray that we would not make the mistakes of Israel. But instead we pray that we would hear Paul, and thus hear you, and be faithful to the story of Jesus coming to rescue us. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us for the ways in which we constantly try to manufacture our righteousness. Forgive us for the ways in which most of our lives look like the younger brother or the older brother. Forgive us. Lord, have mercy on us. We thank you for the rescue that you have sent and pray that we would not rely on anything else for our salvation. And let it be known to us and to the whole world that when the greatest snow monsters appear in our lives, we kneel and we throw ourselves on the mercy of the King and we pray and trust in Him to intercede for us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.